Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, welcome back everybody. This week's Griffith Asia Institute seminar, we've got Professor Nicole George, who's come over from the other side of the river, from the University of Queensland. I suspect that Nicole's going to be very familiar to everybody in this room, but obviously someone who's extremely well respected for the work that she's done in gender and peace building in the Pacific. Extensive, we've just been talking about the field work that she was doing pre-COVID. Hopefully we'll be doing a bit more soon. And this paper comes out of a bigger project, a book project that you've been working on for a while now. And so, Nicole, over to you, Between Rights and Rightfulness and Gender and Violence in the Pacific. Thanks very much, Ian, and thank you, everyone, for making the time. I know it's, you know, given everything that's going on in university life, I really am so thrilled to see you all make the time to come and listen to my talk. I'll just start with an acknowledgement of country and just acknowledge the fact that we're meeting on Jagera and Terrible Country. This land is unceded. I'd like to recognise elders past, present and emerging leaders in those communities and thank them for the ongoing custodianship of the lands. As I said, thanks Ian, thanks Griffith Asia Institute. It's really great to be here today. I was telling Ian, I don't think I've given a face-to-face -face talk since 2019, so I'm actually feeling sort of slightly anxious. It's, it's just so unusual to have real people in the room rather than sort of presenting into the void that Zoom is. So what I want to do actually is try today to present a book project that I've been working on for probably too long, but I'm hoping to wrap up in the next month if I'm going to make the commitment I made to the publisher. And it's on the study is really a fairly complex piece of work examining the ways that the nature and impact of efforts to regulate gender violence in three Pacific Islands jurisdictions, Fiji, Bougainville and New Caledonia. And really in New Caledonia I'm mainly working with Indigenous Kanak women in that context. These territories all face considerable challenges in the management of gendered security as well as complex systems of territorial governance as a result of the history of colonisation or the ongoing presence of colonisers in the case of New Caledonia, but also periods of conflict that have occurred in each setting. And all of this history has implications for the way that gender and gender violence is regulated in each of these case studies. There's a lot to get across and I want to give you a taste of that complexity, but I have had to cut out big chunks as well. So I hope I can give you a kind of a taste of where I'm going with this research and I'm happy to fill in any details in, of course, in Q&A. Just to say something about the structure. First, I'll give an outline of the central problematic that's driven my study. Next, I'll outline the conceptual approach to the study and explain how I'm drawing on feminist institutional theory and feminist theories of scale to examine the form, substance and impact of regulation in this area. And then finally I'll give you a taste of the findings of this work drawing from different chapters in the book to demonstrate what a focus on rules and rulemaking and particularly rule taking reveals about the regulatory environment and how this information can, I hope, this is part of my argument, contribute to a more effective management of gender violence. So to begin, let me say that this study examines where and how regulation on gender violence fails in Pacific countries and where and how it can be made more effective. The puzzle for me in the early days of this project 
stemmed from the apparent false promise of regulatory reform on gender violence in many Pacific countries. What I mean here is that gender violence rates remain persistently high in Pacific Island countries, even while there is increased attention to this by national governments over the past four decades, and more investment from international aid providers on this issue too. The quote at the bottom of this slide helped me understand the scale of this problem. It's from a conversation that occurred when I was conducting some pilot research in a village on the west of Fiji's main island, Vanuolevu. The woman who spoke these words had been part of a group that I'd asked to respond to questions posed to them while looking at a series of photographs that I had worked with a Suva-based community theatre group to prepare. The photographs depicted scenes showing familial, village and community social interactions, but also hinted at possible tensions between the protagonists over the performance of gendered roles. Participants were asked to reflect on the photographs and explain if the women depicted in them were safe, if not why, and what they might do to achieve safety. And I'm going to refer back to the findings from this phase of the research a bit later in the presentation. After our, the formal part of the work had finished, the village women continued to discuss the content of the images and their thoughts on them. One woman abruptly changed the focus of the discussion by saying that the photographs should not just be shown to women. I would like to have a folder of these photographs to take with me to the next village meeting, she said. Our men have no idea what we put up with. We don't speak about these things. Our stories are just our own. The woman's critical reflections revealed her frustration over the way rules were enforced to encourage a silence in her community that allowed violence to persist. They caught my attention because they were spoken in the context of a much publicised national zero tolerance program of reform on gender violence that had been running for some years in Fiji. The program threatened tougher policing responses for perpetrators of violence, more government support services for survivors of gendered violence and improved community policing approaches, integrating state customary and religious authorities into violence prevention activities. The general opinion of the zero tolerance approach was that the government was doing good work. When I said what I was studying, just in casual conversation, people would always mention this program as being quite good. Yet my interlocutor's words on the day of my visit revealed all was not well at the scale of village life. She may have been frustrated by the distant nature of police authority, but she also seemed to be frustrated by her inability to make the experience of gendered insecurity known and understood within local institutions of governance. The fact that it was and is not considered right for women to speak on these matters was seemingly expressed by this woman as a denial of rules at a range of levels that might allow more attention to be focused on women's well-being and security. So this exchange prompted me to think about how rules operating at different scales regulate gender-appropriate behaviour and the significance of this for the regulation of gender security. So to investigate this proposition, I draw on feminist institutional theory in combination with feminist research on scale to investigate how gender violence is enabled and constrained by systems of regulation that exist within and beyond the state. 
My work is guided by three questions. First, how has the state developed a formalised regulatory capacity to respond to gender violence? Second, how does this formalised system of regulatory authority interplay with other sites of rulemaking that exist beyond the state, important in the Pacific Islands where political authority is highly pluralised? And third, how do everyday women whose lives are ordered by systems of gendered regulation identify elements of the localised regulatory environment that they can valuably draw upon to resist or manage experiences of gender violence? There's a lot that I want to bring in here to explain the conceptual approach to my study, but I don't have much time and I don't want to get bogged down in a really theory-heavy talk. But let me just say a few things about the conceptual terrain. The first thing is to foreground the idea that there is value in thinking about rulemaking on gender and gender violence as a regulatory ecology. If you know your new institutionalism literature, you'll recognise the imprint of March and Olson's work here on rules and the importance of thinking about the constellations of rules, formal and informal, that shape behaviour. Thinking about rules within a regulatory ecology allows us to examine how rules are made, how they interplay, and also what people do as rule takers. That is to say, as agents who determine which rules are appropriate to apply to a particular case, recognising that informal rules may retain influence for rule takers, even when they're potentially overturned by other formalised or institutionalised rules. <coughs> Vivian Lowndes' work on gendered rules provided me with a really helpful framework for analysis of regulatory ecologies, and I draw on her three-way typology of institutions or rules to map the regulatory ecology I'm investigating in each case study site. She differentiates between regulatory formalised rules, informal or obligatory rules, so we might think about norms and conventions in that context, and persuasive or discursive rules narrative, symbol, discourse. And she shows how each set of rules is enforced in ways that shape behaviour through systems of reward when they're followed and sanction when they're broken. In this study, I map rules pertinent to the regulation of gender violence in this way, examining the regulatory or formalised rules evident in each case study, the informal or obligatory rules that are also relevant to the regulation of gender violence that may support or may undercut the effective implementation of formalised rules, and the persuasive rules in the form of narrative, symbolism and discourse that also shape how regulatory rules or informal regulatory practice on gender violence is addressed, is understood to be appropriate or rightful. In addition to Lowndes, feminist institutional theorists such as Louise Chappell and Fiona Mackay have also influenced how I've approached the analysis of the way rules on gender violence are institutionalised and implemented. This research has shown how rule takers' assessments about the appropriateness of new rules are shaped by concerns about the spatial and temporal provenance of rules and rulemaking. Existing FI work on this question tends to emphasise how commitments to implement progressive reforms on gender wane with time, while discriminatory practices return. Mackay refers to this as the nestedness of new institutions, whose influence is ultimately bounded by the presence of older rules. Chapel and Mackay's work on these themes has been focused largely on the travel of reform within Western political institutions. 
In Pacific Island jurisdictions, it's much more difficult to work out what constitutes a new or an old institution and how they might be spatially nested. For example, in these jurisdictions, efforts to institutionalise gender reforms framed in human rights terms have been depicted as exogenous forms of rulemaking that threaten Indigenous sovereignty, the security of Indigenous peoples and their identity. Ironically, however, this resistance ignores the extent to which Indigenous institutions themselves have been reshaped and often regendered as a result of the colonial encounter and may operate in the post-colonial context in ways that also have little resemblance to their original form. For example, Pacific historians have shown how colonial systems of rulemaking on property or land tenure, rights of movement and social organisation, even fertility, were often imposed on Indigenous communities in ways that emulated European norms of gendered propriety. This had the effect of weakening the recognition given to customary rules that had previously upheld the status and power of Indigenous women in the community and often encouraged the reformalisation of customary rules so that they became far more strongly masculinised. In these sorts of contexts, regulatory ecologies have a complex history of nestedness and older rules may sometimes be remembered as more progressive in gender terms than the rules regulating gender today. To grapple with this complexity, I look to complement FI analysis with a focus on feminist theories of scale to consider the varied ways that sites of regulation are configured and interplay in each case study site. A scale of focus also allows me to map out how particular forms of regulation travel across political space from the local to the national or vice versa. And the gender geometries of power, and I'm citing Diane Massey here, that shape that process. And I'll explain a little bit how I'm using that term gender geometries of power through the use of examples. The analytical dividend of this approach, I believe, is that it provides for a more precise understanding of where and how formalised regulation of gender violence lacks authority and impact in terms of advancing justice and security for women. But also, and this is where I think my study makes its most valuable contribution, where and how informal Indigenous rulemaking practices exist and indeed persist and might become more influential for managing incidents of gender violence in Pacific Island contexts as well. That's a lot of setup. Now let me give you some empirical detail to fill out this theoretical canvas so that you can understand where all of this is heading. I'd love to map out for you what the regulatory ecology on gender and gender violence looks like for each of the case study sites that I've researched, but that would take us well over time and exhaust you and probably me, so I'm not going to do that, but I will focus on New Caledonia, given its specific context that I think is perhaps not as well known as other places and presents Indigenous women in this context with a particular set of challenges, as my research has revealed. If I can just direct your attention to the slide here, this provides, and actually that given the distance, that's going to be <laughs> impossible to read, but you don't need to read it. It gives you an idea of the system of formalised laws that are applicable to the regulation of gendered violence in New Caledonia. I just want to flick through these slides. 
So that's Bougainville, the system of laws in Bougainville, the formalised laws, and that's the system of laws in Fiji. And this is the one in New Caledonia. So as you can see, these laws are quite comprehensive in terms of in comparison to my other two case studies. The question that remains is, or the question for me, is that the extent to which these rules are accessible for Kanak women in this settler colonial context, and I would argue that's far from clear. These laws have their origins in the French or metropolitan lawmaking environment, remembering that New Caledonia is not a fully sovereign Pacific territory and does not have jurisdiction over criminal law. These laws are also enforced on this territory by metropolitan state security agencies which sit under the, the kind of jurisdiction of a French High Commission. Since the foundation of New Caledonia as a colonial state of France, there has been a long history of indigenous resistance to this scenario, often a violent resistance. And this most recently came to a head in the 1980s with devastating results. The principle that New Caledonia's various communities should live together under the umbrella of a common destiny, destin commun, provided a discursive foundation for the peace negotiated under the Matignon and Numia Accords in the late 1980s and 90s. Displays of French state hegemony often undercut this idea in practice, however. State authorities are not averse to enforcing their will on the territory when it's seen to be politically expedient to do so, and the imposed nature of the 2021 referendum on self-determination was a particular illustration of this. In a more everyday sort of context, French state security agencies police Kanak communities with heavy force. There have been incidents where riot squads have used live fire to manage Kanak unrest on the territory, and this was only in the past 18 months. And Kanak youth are heavily overrepresented in the territory's prison population. The result is that the state security agencies and state systems of justice are easily depicted by Kanak people as posing an existential threat to them and their desire for sovereignty. This scenario also means that Kanak women are strongly disinclined to interpret rules originating from and implemented by the state as providing them with meaningful sources of protection or security if they're exposed to violence. It doesn't help that in August 2021, the commander of the gendarmerie in New Caledonia, Colonel Eric Steiger, was removed from his post after it was found that he'd been tried and found guilty in metropolitan France for an assault of his wife. There are clear reasons for Kanak people to distrust the coercive capacities, the carceral capacities, well, maybe coercive as well, but carceral too, capacities of the state. Against this backdrop, however, Kanak women leaders have also argued with some force that the goal of Kanak sovereignty will never be fully achieved if the oppression or insecurity that Kanak women experience in their communities is ignored or tolerated. So it's important to say here that studies show as many as one in three Kanak women are exposed to violence from intimate partners or family members. Kanak women leaders such as Dewe Gorode have gone as far as arguing that Kanak identity and systems of customary authority will only endure in the settler colonial context if they're also able to accommodate human rights principles of regulation. But male Kanak nationalist leaders have responded with strong criticism of this view, promoting the narrative that debates on women's rights are both anti-Kanak 
and antithetical to the decolonization agenda. And I think their animosity is explained by the idea that the human rights framework can legitimize a scaling down of state authority that is understood to further imperil Kanak sovereignty. Kanak women's lack of confidence in state regulation is borne out in national statistics. While data on the exact number of Kanak women who bring reports of gendered violence to the attention of state police is not recorded, a source of grievance for Kanak women activists, my own efforts to crunch the numbers on reporting for the whole population and then estimated gender violence incidence levels with the Kanak community suggest that around only 2% of Kanak women who are exposed to violence annually will approach the state police or other state agencies for support or assistance. In addition to pronouncements of New Caledonia's common destiny, the 1999 Numea Accords, so that was the sort of second round of peace accords that were negotiated to resolve the tensions between the settler population in New Caledonia and the indigenous people. So the Numea Accords also included commitments to rebalance institutional authority in New Caledonia, to bring greater recognition to connect systems of governance and law and overcome some of those challenges I mentioned earlier. Within the justice sector, efforts were made to scale up the informal practice or obligatory rules of Kanak customary regulation to inform state civil law in the mediation of familiar dispute cases involving Kanak people. The Kanak Customary Senate has proposed the codification of Kanak customary rules on the family to assist this project and also overseeing the appointment of Kanak customary assessors to guide the deliberations of state judicial representatives. The development of a Kanak customary court has been hailed by members of the national judiciary as a first step towards the decolonization of law in New Caledonia. Yet the project has been led and is championed almost solely by men, or as one of my Kanak interlocutors put it, les héros de patriarcat, the heroes of the patriarchy. The results of the court's work are therefore predictably gendered. The all-male customary senate has made declarations on customary law, including phrases such as, Kanak society is patriarchal, that rights, powers and responsibilities are centred on men, and that women are only accorded authority in matters related to children, the education of children and family life. These principles also explain why there are only four women included in the ranks of the 52 customary assessors who advise European magistrates in the dispensation of customary civil law. Researchers who've studied the workings of the customary law courts have offered further scathing appraisals of the forms of justice it delivers to Kanak women. They found that customary assessors frequently awarded compensation in gender violence cases in ways that privileged male claimants over women, and that Kanak women were often chastised by European magistrates, taking their lead from customary assessors if their behaviour in the court did not display an adequate level of gendered civility. All of this makes clear, I think, the geometries of masculinized power operating at different scales to influence rule takers' assessments about the appropriate rules that should be applied to the regulation of gender violence. In New Caledonia, these power geometries shape how the protections offered by the state are scaled down and become weakened and distrusted by everyday connect women in the community. Conversely, these geometries of gendered power shape the ways in which customary rules are scaled up 
and formalised in a gender discriminatory form that operates against the interests of women in Connect customary civil court settings too. It's important to be clear at this point that I'm not presenting an argument here that pictures Indigenous attachment to custom in the Pacific as a problem for women's rights. Indeed, my argument, I think, is the exact opposite of this. I've worked with women in each case study site who proudly proclaim their attachment to their identity and to their custom and to their culture. Often they've gone further, explaining how customary rules provide them with protection from violence. The concerns that many go on to raise, however, is that they feel deprived of the ability to defend their place within and their perspectives on customary institutions. Extending on the points I made earlier, this sheds light, I think, on the ways that masculinized power geometries at various scales provide some rule takers with the ability to make more influential assessments about the appropriateness of rules on gendered security and how this can contribute to the negation or devaluing of other rules, sometimes new but sometimes old, by contesting the authenticity of those rules. But we should never lose sight of, I think, the fact that rules function as an ecology. There are lots of them in each context and particularly in the Pacific and communities may understand and reproduce these rules as rule takers quite differently from even the people in powerful positions of authority. There are always powerful rule takers who defend their preferred rules robustly. But this should not obscure the significance of alternative rules, particularly in highly pluralised regulatory contexts, that endure because people understand them also to have value. All of this became much clearer to me when I asked women about the types of rules that they understood to be appropriate for the management of gendered violence in everyday contexts. From doing this in each of the three sites I've researched, I found that women tend to describe obligatory rules and practices at the familial, household and community level as more valuable to them than is commonly understood and perhaps more meaningful for the management of experiences of gendered violence than rights-based rulemaking at the national scale. However, women's perspective on obligatory rules in localised contexts frequently challenges the ways customary authorities talk about these things, or authorities such as the Customary Senate in New Caledonia, who have quite, I guess, restrictive ideas about how gendered rules are constituted. So let me illustrate this by discussing findings from the second phase of this study, which involved the photo elicitation work that I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation. Again, I could really tell you a whole lot about responses to all these photographs. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about two images. And the results I'm talking about here are results from surveys that involved about between 70 and 90 people in each case study site. And I delivered those surveys with the assistance of women's organisations in each of the countries I worked in. So I'm just talking about results from both of these images on the slide there. Both of these images were designed to depict the idea of tension within the familial environment generated by men's or women's social interactions with others. The first image was designed to elicit reflections on women's ability to socialise independently from male family members. A majority of participants in Fiji and Bougainville responded in ways that were critical of the woman in the image, characterising her as engaged in gossip, sharing stories that might 
cause problems for others or for the woman in her own family, and time-wasting in ways that ignored household or familial responsibilities. In short, many argued that the woman was ignoring familial rules of gendered obligation. Other answers referenced rules of gendered obedience and authority in household settings, stating, for example, that women talking together can become a source of irritation to men who can respond angrily because they feel excluded or they view women's sociability as disloyal to them. Those who responded in this way argued that the woman would be more secure if she involved the man, usually assumed to be her husband, in social activities. These opinions were not as common amongst Kanak respondents, although one did state that these types of scenarios are quite common provocation for gendered violence. So actually, I just should clarify, I'm talking about responses to the bottom image there. Sorry, I thought they were ordered the other way around in the slide. Aside from these critical responses to that photo, a range of study participants also responded in ways that challenged these restrictive understandings of rules on gendered obligation and obedience. Some respondents argued that the woman should have the autonomy to manage her time, that she should spend time with her friends, and that she was entitled to a fun moment with others. Others challenged the tendency to emphasise the dangers of women talking together as gossip, instead stating that the woman was sharing ideas or sharing problems with her friend and they were trying to work out how to solve them. Many were also critical of the husband's presence, describing him as someone who interferes, refusing to give her the freedom, or potentially an abusive person. One respondent commented on the, this is from Fiji, on the controlling nature of the husband, stating, the husband wants her inside the house. It's a prison inside. A majority of Kanak women stated that the woman should be able to talk freely without the interference of men, and if she was unsafe, the woman herself had broken no rule, and the man's pride or misuse of authority was more in question than her own actions. In this vein, a number of Kanak respondents commented that the woman was too constrained by the husband's authority. In response to questions about what action that might make the woman safe, respondents who identified rules upholding women's social autonomy were also much more likely to nominate external sites of authority as important sources of support. These included chiefs, religious leaders, friends, other family members, and members of the community. State support organizations were only mentioned by women in Fiji or Bougainville a handful of times. Although low, this contrasts with the way these questions were answered by Kanak study participants. In this context, Kanak women seemed to understand the rulemaking on gender and women's social interactions as relatively settled, that the woman was doing nothing wrong. But they were far less inclined to nominate any external authorities as helpful for upholding these rules if they were disputed in practice, a scenario that I think reflects their disillusionment with the geometries of gendered power, customary and state base that shape how rule taking on gender violence is practiced in this context. So now I just want to talk about the image at the top there. When participants were asked to comment on this image, which reverses the scenario and shows a woman trying to prevent her husband from socialising and drinking with his friends, equally interesting perspectives on gendered rules were revealed. Respondents in each case study often commented on the fact that this kind of situation was a common cause of violence and sometimes a scenario that they had experienced personally. 
About one-third of respondents in Fiji and Bougainville and half of Kanak respondents went on to observe that women have an obligation to avoid proximity to alcohol-affected people to remain safe and that the actions of the woman in the image put her safety at risk. Others contended that if the woman was unsafe, it was because she imposed her authority on the husband in public and that could also generate a violent retaliation. On the other hand, and somewhat unexpectedly I might add, more than half of the respondents in each case study site commented on the rules within household and familial environments that emphasised men's obligations to their partners and families, rather than only focusing on the rules regulating women's behaviour and security. And that was really surprising to me because I've spent quite a lot of the past 20 years talking about the way gendered obligations put a burden on women, but not necessarily thinking about gendered obligations putting expectation on men's shoulders too. These respondents were inclined to focus on how men were supposed to behave in the role of a husband and a father. Observing, for example, he's married, he's supposed to stay home and look after the wife and kids, or he's supposed to have willpower, or he's not supposed to follow his friends while he's a married man, or one of my favourites, he didn't marry his friends or the beer. In Bougainville, a number of respondents also commented negatively on the financial implications of this kind of behaviour and the extent to which money spent on alcohol and other forms of substance abuse or addiction deprives the wife and family of the husband's income. Here the rule that men have an obligation to support their families financially and not be wasteful with money seemed to influence respondents' thinking. In their responses, there were no references, however, in response to this photo, made to the possible sites of state security support that would be useful to the woman depicted, nor was there reference made to rights-based principles that might be relevant to her situation. So here again, the focus of discussion was placed firmly on the obligatory rules of marriage, establishing the rightful ways that women and men should relate to each other. So let me conclude with a couple of closing statements. First, the findings generated from the photo elicitation stage of this research are critical to my effort to build a fuller portrait of the ways the regulatory ecology on gender and gender violence is configured in each case. Some gender advocates, both within the region and certainly those outside it, have tended to assume that at the scales of intimate family relationships and household life, Rules protecting women from physical mistreatment are absent in Pacific societies and need to be imported from elsewhere, and that the human rights response is therefore needed and productive. The findings from this research suggest that efforts to build local recognition that gender violence is a violation of women's rights can incur a powerful resistance and that the assumption that state agencies have the legitimacy, the resourcing or the inclination to implement this response in a way that is meaningful at the local level is gravely misplaced. Second, while results from both phases of my study shed light on the myriad ways that rule-taking practice on gender and gender violence is contested in each case study site, this does not mean that the effort to regulate this phenomenon is futile Rather, as I aim to show, there are obligatory or informal systems of rules that are invoked by women at the everyday scale as meaningful for their efforts to manage experiences of violence or threatened insecurity. The challenge lies not 
in building new rules, I would say, certainly not at the state level, but rather in overcoming the gendered geometries of power that shape rule-taking behaviour across a range of scales. I think a far more localised and deliberative approach which positions Indigenous Pacific women as knowledge holders and rule takers about what is rightful in their communities, rather than diminished and victimised subjects of rule making, would be a real step forward for the way this issue is managed in the Pacific. Thank you, Nicole. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.